We have a lot of verses today. This is, if I were a Star Trek nerd, which I am not, this would be light speed or warp speed, as we are going to be looking at nearly 50 verses. So right around 4 o'clock, we'll be dismissed. And, uh, but we are going to read a large section of this, and then we're going to focus in on some condensed parts of it, because all of it, you'll figure it out as we go. Now, when several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and his sister Bernice arrived in Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. While they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, hey, there's a man here that was left prisoner by my, is it predecessor? The the pre-guy before me, Felix. And when I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders and the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence to to death against him. Let's move down to verse 20. I've got to be honest with you, King Agrippa. I'm at a loss on how to investigate this matter. I've asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem there and stay in trial with these matters. But, but when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision... I ordered him to be kept in custody until I send him to Caesar. And then Agrippa said to Festus, I'd like to hear this man myself. Tomorrow I shall hear from him. So the next day Agrippa came together with his sister Bernice amid great pomp and circumstance. I added the word circumstance. Is that the right word? Isn't that a song? Thank you, Paul, my resident music expert. And entered the auditorium accompanied by a commanders and, and all the prominent men of the city at the command of Festus. And Paul was brought in. Let's go to verse 1 of chapter 26. Agrippa said to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things in which I'm being accused of by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all of the customs in question among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So then all the Jews know my manner of life from my youth up from which the beginning was spent among my own nation at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion, and now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made to God and our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope and attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I am being accused by the Jews." Why is it considered incredible among our people, you people, if God does raise someone from the dead? So then I thought to myself that if I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received the authority from the chief priests, but also when I was being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all of the synagogues. I tried to force them to blaspheme. Paul saying, I used to be against people like myself. And being furious and raged at them, I kept pursuing them into foreign cities. And while I was engaged in going into one of those foreign cities called Damascus, with the authority and the commission of the chief priest to persecute these people, in the middle of the day, O king, I saw my way, the light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me. And those who were journeying with me, and when I had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in a Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up, stand to your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things I'm going to show you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those in Damascus first and also to Jerusalem throughout the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Christ would suffer. And that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and then to the Gentiles. While Paul was saying this defense, Festus interrupted him in a loud voice and said, You're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you mad. That's a fun, we'll get to that tonight. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. Can you almost hear? (laughs) All right. How many here have corrected course at all? Anyone at all? I am not on my mind, most honorable Festus. But utter words of sober truth. And the king knows these things that I'm talking about. And I speak to him with confidence. For I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For this has not been done in some corner where no one has heard about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know that you do. And King Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time, you're trying to persuade me to become a Christian. And we'll stop there and we'll ask God's blessing and we'll walk through this together. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to be in your word as a body, to learn together so that we might grow together. Father, I confess my sins in front of these people and I ask for your forgiveness. Father, I thank you for the gift of repentance. A gift that initiated my salvation and a gift that continues through salvation. Father, I pray that you would glorify yourself this morning. Give me clear thoughts for your glory. Teach your word for your glory. Lord, I don't want to be a parrot who just repeats words that other people believe. But a person who lives out these things we believe. Father, we come to you with one request. We ask one gift from you this morning. Give us Christ. Give us nothing but Christ. And so, Father, I pray these things, and I ask these things in your Son's precious name. And if you're awake this morning, say amen. Amen. All right, we got a lot here. So back in the sound booth, I'm going to start about 20% down that first page with the word context. 
What we're going to look at today is going to start with King Agrippa, and it's going to end with King Agrippa. So we're going to unpack the context. Paul has been under arrest for two years now, having been found innocent three times by the Roman authorities. Festus arrives as the new governor and has tried to resolve the tension between the Jewish leadership and their desire to kill an innocent Roman citizen by the name of Paul, the Apostle Paul, but to no avail. Paul, being a Roman, decided to appeal to Caesar, which is his right, but this leaves a problem for Festus. When you send someone to Caesar for a legal judgment, it is customary to send him with papers telling, the, telling Caesar, who is Nero at this time, what the crimes of Paul are. But what does Festus write about with Paul? He hasn't done anything wrong as it concerns to Roman law. Nero will very quickly say, why is this man being sent to me? Why is Festus not able to do his job in sending me this guy and he's done nothing wrong? What Festus needs is a credible charge to pin to Paul here so he won't look incompetent. And then hope arrived by the, by the name of King Agrippa. Now, King Agrippa was the last of the Herod dynasty, all right? He was an expert in Jewish affairs, a Jewish uh, on his mother's side and Gentile on his father's side. However, he did consider himself to be Jewish in his belief system. He was often called, by the way, in this culture, the Jewish king. As someone who had authority to choose the high priest in Jerusalem at this time, he even had certain privileges inside the temple, in, inside of Jerusalem. And so just to make this clear here, he is by all means Jewish from his perspective. And by the way, not only was he Jewish in his belief and perspective, but he also was very knowledgeable, an expert if you will, in the politics and the beliefs of the Jews that was far better than Festus ever had. In in fact, you see right here, Festus says, I am at a loss on how to investigate this. Thank God, goodness, there is a resident expert in this area to help me through this. Now, Agrippa was also involved with a Jewish woman by the name of Bernice. Now, these names ought to be very familiar to you as this slide comes up right here. After all, Agrippa and Bernice are brother and sister who are also involved in an incestuous physical relationship with one another, which is why you see the word gross in the heart. Is everyone following me here? Okay, four of you, good. These names should be familiar to you. In fact, their sister Drusilla was the third wife of the previous governor, Felix, and we studied that just a couple weeks ago. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Bernice here. Now, this is not for shock value at all, but it is for interpretive value. Understanding this couple will help unlock much of what we are about to study with what Paul says. The first husband that Bernice had was the guy by the name of Marcus. Marcus was her first husband. Then she left Marcus and, and moved over and married her uncle, Herod. After she was married to her uncle, Herod, she eventually ran away from him and went back to her brother for company. How many here can echo the word gross? This is Bernice. I can't even find myself in my notes anymore. I guess you could say, tongue-in-cheek, Bernice loved her family. Now, don't worry. 
all right? Because soon she's going to cheat on her brother, and she is going to become uh, uh, the mistress of, of Emperor Vas- I can't, Vespasian, all right? Now, Emperor and Bersella enjoyed a relationship for a while, but eventually she got bored with him and moved over to his son, Titus, at this time. So father and son had a relationship with Bernice. In the words of the four great theologians called the Beach Boys, Bernice gets around. That's, who snorted? Who snorted? Was it you? That was incredible, all right? Wow. And sinful. But let's move forward. Now grab this. This is going to blow your mind, all right? Eventually, because of Bernice's immorality, Titus will have to send her away because of the moral outcry of Rome. Nero can't handle her immorality. Now how many here understand Nero was not a bastion of morality? Anyone? Rome saying this woman needs to go is like Las Vegas saying there's too much gambling going on. It's like Washington saying we we have too much money. It's like a pig saying there's too much mud. There's like a fish saying there's too much water. Now, so immoral was Bernice that Rome said you have to go. Now, it was well known that after this, Bernice would fool around on her brother by having relationships with a lot of other people. You know, John MacArthur summarizes this rather well when he says this. He says this. Bernice and Agrippa, while unfaithful to each other, always found themselves back in each other's arms, and they were inseparable in the Acts narrative. Here's what I want you to understand. This is a sin-infested couple. Now, why do I tell you this? Well, I'm going to tell you why I tell you this, but not quite yet, because there's a little bit more that I want to get into here in the details before I unpack why. It says here, the next day, Agrippa and Bernice, brother and sister, came in with great pomp. With a glittering array of military and civic leaders, Agrippa and Bernice find their seats of prominence. Can you hear the, the clapping as they roll into the foyer of the, of the, the palace and everyone is clapping and, and the civic leaders are there and maybe there's some trumpets playing and you see their royal clothes on dragging behind them as the commanders and the prominent men of the city follow behind. Now why do I I tell you this because I want you to focus in on Agrippa and Bernice. Do you see them? Do you see them? Do you see them in all their bling, in all their posse? Do you see Bernice straightening her royal robes and Agrippa nodding at his adoring followers with all of this glitter and polish? Now with all of this going on, I want you then to cast your eyes on Paul at this time. The contrast could not be greater. It could not be starker. Their clothes and Paul's, their physical condition and Paul's, their authority and Paul's, their morality and Paul's. This is the world turned upside down. This scene is carefully orchestrated right now to make Paul smaller and they larger. And by the way, this is the way of the world. Nothing really has changed. For the world says that God must decrease and I must increase. The world says God is dead and I am God. The child of God says Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Here's a question. Here's a question for you. 
based on what people can observe in your life and in mine. Based on what people can see in your life and mine. What does your life say? What does my life say? Do they see you increasing or do they see Jesus increasing? What I want us to see here is the irony of the situation. The guilty, I like this here, the guilty stand in judgment of the innocent. The guilty stand in judgment of the innocent. The immoral over the moral. The evil over the righteous. And what does Paul say here? Paul says, this isn't fair. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I am a victim of an an oppressed situation. No, he doesn't say that. He will look into the face of absolute injustice. And he will, get this, he will live out and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. He will look them in the eyes of this couple and he says that, by the way, a couple that says they believe in scriptures as far as the Old Testament, yet, yet deny the scriptures with the way they live their lives. He's going to share the gospel with this kind of person. By the way, here, Paul, by the way, is very, really not even given a defense of himself as much as he's going to evangelize Agrippa, who is in front of him, which begs the question, why? Why, if he is appealing to Caesar, why, if he wants to get free and head to Rome, which we we find in Rome as he longs to get there, it's the promise of God to get there, why is he taking this opportunity to evangelize Agrippa? Well, because Agrippa, if you remember our backstory, is Jewish. He claims to believe what Paul believes. Grab that because that is the first subtle shift in applying this text to our lives. Agrippa says he believes what Paul believes as it is found in the Old Testament and the prophets. Now Paul will unpack the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament as it relates to the prophets and how it should affect Bernice's life and Agrippa's life. Now there's too much here for us to touch on this morning, so we're going to concentrate on the largest pulsing artery of this text. And here's the main overarching theme of the text here. The resurrection demands repentance. The resurrection demands repentance. In which, by the way, considering to who Paul is talking to, that context fits rather well, does it not? Considering who Paul is talking to right now, this approach is the right evangelistic opportunity. And here's why. Agrippa is a man who says he believes in the teaching of the Scriptures. He believes in the teachings of the Scriptures. He believes in the resurrection, yet his life looked nothing like what he said he believed in. Hmm. My fear is that there is a lot of Agrippas in the church. My fear is and concern, and for my heart and yours, is that there are a lot of Agrippas in the church. So let's just jump into this text right here. Here's what Paul going to say in a nutshell to this highly immoral, but I believe in the Scriptures couple. Here's what he's going to say. If you truly believe in what the Bible says, and Agrippa, I know that you say that you do. In fact, we see the words right there. I know that you believe what the Scriptures say. The Old Testament clearly talks about how the Messiah must suffer, die, and be resurrected. You, you know this, Agrippa. You study this. You go to the temple. 
After all, the Old Testament clearly talks about this, about the, the Messiah suffering and dying. In fact, I have literally said, and you see it right there in the text, I, I testify to nothing but what the prophets and Moses, Moses being the clean-up hitter of the Old Testament, the, the, the most revered of them all, and Moses said was going to take place as to whether Christ will suffer and whether he will rise again from the dead. This is nothing new. What I want you to see here in the blue is that there's nothing new here for Judaism. This is what you say you believe, highlighted there in the blue. Paul says to Agrippa, Christianity is not against Judaism. We are not some perverse sect or cult. By the way, Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism. Psalms chapter 22, Isaiah 53, Psalms chapter 16. My friends, this is one of the most, grab this, one of the most important statements in Acts about the relationship of Jesus to Jewish scriptures. Of Jesus to the Old Testament. Paul's testimony contains nothing more than what the Old Testament promised would happen. It contains nothing but the fulfillment of the promise. In fact, it is in line with it. The scriptures, here it is, the Old Testament scriptures have been fulfilled in the person and the words of Jesus. To reject Jesus is to reject the promises of the Old Testament. To reject Jesus is to reject the promise of the Old Testament. In fact, what Paul is saying here is this. At this moment, this is what he's saying. He says, a true Jew must become a Christian in order to remain a Jew. Your scripture said, your Messiah will come, he will suffer, he will die, and he will rise again. And all of Jerusalem knows this happened. In fact, we'll study that tonight. He says, it's not like it happened in a corner. It's not like, like, like 516 witnesses saw it and all of Jerusalem was an uproar and the chief priests had to create a lie and ask Rome to be complicit in it. It's not like this is hidden in a corner. It's right in front of all of us. And because this is so true, because this is what the Old Testament says, he says this, I continually proclaim to all of the regions that they are to repent and turn to God. You see that in the purple. I want you to notice here, and this is where we move even further to application, because there are a lot of grippas in the church of Jesus Christ today. Would you agree with that, church? Say amen. If there are a lot of people who say they believe in the Scriptures, but their life looks nothing like it. Amen? Maybe. Maybe we can see a reflection of that in the mirror as well. Notice the three words that all mean the same thing in this text when it comes to the gospel. We have the word faith, we have the word repent, and we have the word turn to God. Paul uses all three of these words interchangeably to describe the gift of salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul uses all three interchangeably to describe the gospel. These three responses, now grab this because this is not how we are normally raised in traditional gospel of Grand Rapids, all right? All three of these are used to describe the one event in Jesus Christ called salvation. Paul repeatedly teaches over and over and over again, whether here or in the rest of the New Testament, that faith in Jesus Christ cannot be separated by how we live our lives. Let me say that again. Faith in Jesus Christ cannot be separated in how one lives their life. 
In fact, there is a heretical teaching in, the, in a term here that actually captures such a thought. And it's a big word, but we are adults and we can handle big thoughts and big words. And now some of us may say, how will this get me more likes on TikTok? Here it is. It won't. But what it will do is help us understand and know God more. And because of that, it is worthy of our attention. In fact, it is far worthy of more of our attention than anything social media can bring into our lives. Amen? This is... Well, that was horrible, all right? This is why we live and breathe. The word is antinomian. This thought is one can place their faith in Jesus Christ and do whatever they want without any concern of God's moral standards and judgment. By the way, my friends, this is false, it is heretical, it is unbiblical, and nowhere in the entire Word of God is it ever taught. How many antinomian Agrippas fill the pews of the church today? How many fill the church today? Or worse, rarely fill the pews, live like the world, and call themselves Christians. In fact, look at what Paul says here. When one repents, turns, and places their faith, all, all three are part of the same event. All three are inclusive here. In fact, he looks at, he says it right out here. There will be, they will be performing deeds, where is it? There it is in the pink, performing deeds consistent with repentance. Now it gets past just saying the right words. To trust in God is to be responsive to God. Right there in the pink. To trust in God is to be responsive to God. Paul could have literally just written to the church and just said, you know what, my friends, if I could summarize this, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. We cannot say we believe if we have not turned and we have not repented of our sins. Repentance is the ongoing, ever-increasing turning of the whole person, heart, soul, and mind, and body, away from sin and towards God. A change of not only the mind, but a change of the will, the change of emotions, and here it is, the change of behavior. Paul says to Agrippa, who who believes in Old Testament prophecies, you cannot believe in the resurrection and remain the same sinful person you are today. As my father always taught me, if you've been to Calvary and nothing has changed, then nothing has changed. That's what we're getting here. You cannot believe in the resurrection and remain the same sinful person you are today. Now let me be clear here again. No one firmly rejects works as a mean of salvation than Paul does. Yet none more firmly demand good works as a consequence of salvation than Paul does. You see, at salvation, when a person's heart is changed, so is their behavior, so is their desires, so is their life. Scripture is replete with this. It just drips from it. Every time you turn the page, this, this concept and this truth just kind of slings all over us. And while I can give you many, at least let me give you one. In Romans chapter 6, verse 17, but thanks be to God through, through you, used to be slaves to sin, but you have come to obey from your heart a pattern of teaching which is now claimed as your allegiance. May I ask you a question? I want to ask you a question here. And I want to ask myself as well. Why has so many churches abandoned this teaching of Jesus and Paul? 
Why have we made the gospel easy? Free, yes. Paid for, yes. But easy, no. No. Why have so many churches taken an exegetical and hermeneutical scalpel and said, you can have faith without repentance and repentance without turning? Think about that, my friends. If your life is not turning away from the pattern of sin, then there has been no repentance. And if there has been no repentance, then there has been no faith. You can't claim salvation with no desire or transformation for the one who imparts it. Paul Washer, whom I'm going to have an opportunity to hear soon in person, speaks to this well when he says this, There is no such thing as a continuously carnal Christian. There is no such thing as a Agrippa in the church of Jesus Christ. Now some would say, well, I struggle with that because repentance and turning, those are works. Those are works. And Ephesians 2, 8, 9 makes it very clear that it is by faith that we are saved, not of works, lest we boast. Amen, church? We are saved by faith and faith alone. Amen? We believe that. Could you ever earn salvation on your best day? Talk to me. Absolutely not. I can't. I can't. I tell, I sometimes joke, like, if, if my life was a reality show, I'd be fired before the ink dried on the contract. Because of my kids and family and how they have, no, I'm just teasing, I'm teasing. Me too. Faith, not of works, that we are saved. My salvation, therefore, a lot of times we falsely think, therefore, my salvation has nothing to do with the way my life looks. My salvation is just a a dormant, give me a word that goes with dormant. Anyone? Uh, Dormant, petrified seed that maybe someday will wake up. That's not what Paul ever talks about in scriptures, including Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus Christ, I believe he said, you will be a new what? All things what? And what becomes new? The new. Now, some of us will say, my salvation, therefore, has nothing to do with the way I live my life. That's interesting because that would be the position of Agrippa. That would be the position of Bernice. That would not be the position of Paul or Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul clearly teaches that faith, repentance, and turning are synonyms of one another. They are gifts when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Allow me to unpack this just a minute here, all right? Imagine for a moment that this heart represents, all three parts represent the one gift that is the gospel and salvation in Jesus Christ. Repentance is not a work, it is a gift that God gives those through faith. Acts 5 talks about that, 2 Timothy talks about that, Romans 2 talks about that. Now, turning... Away from sin, i.e., whether you want to call it progressive sanctification or a lifelong of, of desiring God more and hating our sin more, is not a work. It is a gift of God. 1 Corinthians 6 talks about that. 1 Thessalonians 5 talks about that. Romans chapter 8 talks about that. Now, by the way, turning away from sin might be hard work, but is God putting that desire in your heart that even causes you to want to do it? And finally, faith is not a work. 
It is a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, John chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and many, many other verses. Allow me to illustrate this. If these three shapes make up one heart, and there it is, these three shapes equal up one heart, what happens if one of these do not exist? Do I still have a heart here? Talk to me. Is there a heart up there? No. No, there's not. If these three gifts make up the gift of salvation and one or two do not exist, can I claim to be a child of God? Here's what I just want to say. God does not grant one-third of the gift of salvation. He gifts it all. God does not give one-third of the gift of salvation. How is it then that so many in the church have separated these things Why have we pulled them apart? My friends, God's salvation does not simply save you from the penalty of sin and hell one day. It is actively saving you from the power of sin right now. Amen? And if the power of God cannot deliver you increasingly from the power of sin, tell me, if it can't do that, how in the world will it ever save us from judgment? It's not even practical. It's not even, it's not even conceivable. To say that I have the former without the latter is to have neither. When we call upon the name of the Lord, we receive the gift of faith, the gift of repentance, the gift of turning, and we receive all three of these. And it is here in this moment that maybe we can fully understand a verse that we have heard our whole lives. Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old pass away. The new things come. Notice Paul didn't say, if anyone be in Christ, they are a barely visible, very similar to the old creation. Yet we ignore such a teaching and reality in scriptures to those who claim Jesus Christ. And then Paul turns to Agrippa, who, by the way, let us remember, is a believer in Old Testament prophecy. He turns to them, a person who would believe in the resurrection of the dead on an intellectual basis, yet still embraces a sin-infested life. There are no deeds in, in accordance to repentance. Can you hear Bernice kind of clear her throat in this moment? How many here have ever felt like, I am the object of this and I'm uncomfortable? Anyone at all? Maybe some of us are feeling that right now. Can you almost hear Bernice just kind of, <clears throat> this man must die, you know? Clear her throat in awkward discomfort. And then Paul, delivering the gospel, more than a legal defense, says this, King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? And Paul doesn't even take a long breath before he says, in front of all of the commanders and royal men and the people around and this great performance, and he looks at him and he says, I, I know that you do. Here's a question that comes to my mind. If he believes in the prophets and the Old Testament, and by the way, he believes in the resurrection of the dead, then Paul, why are you trying to give him the gospel? Why are you trying to teach this man the gospel if he already has an intellectual understanding of it? Because Agrippa believed the prophets 
in an intellectual sort of way. Just as many believe in Jesus in the church today. But it made no difference in the way Agrippa lived his life. Just like many of us in the church today. And we'll leave here and live life no different from the world, confessing a belief that doesn't even have the power to change the heart or behavior. My friends, belief in Jesus Christ that is not applied to life is worthless. Belief that is not applied is worthless. Just like believing the seatbelt can save your life, but you never put it on is worthless. If your faith has no power to deliver you from the love of sin today, why in the world would it contain power to deliver you from the price of sin at death? I want to grab this here. If there is no transforming power in your life now, Why in the world would it contain power to save your soul then? If it can't save you from temptation now, if it's not growing like a seed beside a river of water, if it's not over-consuming your life, progressive, now I'm not talking about perfection. How many here can agree? This is not a collection of perfect people, amen? We are so far from it. We are not some perfect collection. We are people who just want Christ more. Amen? But if there is no transforming power, I want more of Christ in our lives, then why in the world, if the power is void now, why in the world would there be power when we die? No power is no power. That's just not a doctrinal observation. It is a practical one. And that thought ought to make us shudder. Especially in our highly religious culture. Paul says a thousand times, in a thousand ways, belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ will produce deeds consistent with repentance. And Agrippa knows what Paul's trying to do. As a Jewish king... He can't disregard the prophets. As a highly religious, grand rapian church attender, you can't deny the scriptures. That would, how kosher would that be? Yet as an unrepentant sinner, he can hardly claim its power. Whoa. As an unrepentant sinner, he can hardly claim its power. So he avoids the question, much like most of us do in our lives as well. He applied, in such a short time, are you going to persuade me to make a Christian? I wonder, looking at your life and my life right now, do you see all three parts of one indivisible gift called salvation working mightily in your life? Many here may say, well, I remember I did number one. Or, yeah, let's go with faith. I remember the faith part, but it didn't come with the other two. I really don't have a desire for Christ. I I see Him as an obstacle more than an opportunity. If this is true, then we uh, we must examine the authenticity of the very faith we say we believe because God does not grant one third of the gift of salvation. My friends, 
Is the Holy Spirit speaking to you right now through His Word? Being a Christian is not merely a culture. Being a Christian is not a culture that can eliminate turning and repentance or an ethic. It is a divinely revealed relationship with the Creator of the universe through His Son, Jesus Christ. And nothing can remain the same. There are a lot of Agrippas in the church today. Truth of the matter is, there's a lot of Agrippas behind the pulpits too. The question now is the same as Paul's to Agrippa then. Do you believe the prophets? Do you believe the Scriptures? Now for some of us, this is an easy observation. Your life is radically different. But to many, like myself, who grew up in the church and were saved so young, how in the world do you tell if your life is radically changing for Christ, if Jesus Christ is all you have ever known or lived under? The answer is found in what you pursue, what you love, how you spend your time, One can be culturally Christian and spiritually dead. So here's the question. Is Christ becoming more and more the treasure in your life? Or more and more, Christ seems to be an obstacle to what you treasure in life. Today, I want to encourage you to receive the full gift of salvation. We're going to dismiss a bit differently. In a moment, I'm going to leave this room. I'm going to close this in prayer, and I'm going to walk out those doors. I'm going to keep walking. And I'm going to go to the fireplace room with a couple other people who are volunteers. That room is going to be ours. And we're going to sit there for the next 10 to 15 minutes. After we close in prayer, If you want to have the true, life-changing, repenting, turning, growing faith in Jesus Christ that is a gift, all you have to do is meet us there. We want to talk to you. We want to love you. We want to pray with you. We want to walk alongside of you. Just meet us there. If you don't know where it is, just ask someone. It has a fireplace in it. We'll unpack more of this passage tonight. But I encourage you, the time to respond to the Lord is when He speaks to you. Gracious Heavenly Father, dismiss us with Your blessing. Lord, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would draw many of us to salvation. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift that is not dormant. Start in my life. I pray this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. I love you guys. You are dismissed.